Right, we have been going through, uh, or we're in, in the midst of a series on biblical theology, which is where we take certain themes that crop up throughout scripture and they traverse the entire context of the Bible and they kind of reveal themselves in more and more detail as they go on. So we're going to be doing a bit of that with creation today. And I'm particularly excited about this topic because it's topical. Uh, it's topical because you pretty much, if you look at every vice going through humanity at the moment, you can pretty much pin it down to these first couple of chapters in Genesis that we're going to be focusing on today. So the very first thing, if you have your Bibles there, if not, it doesn't matter, because I imagine a lot of you have heard this first verse and can quote it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is one of those mic drop moments where if you just think through the ramifications of what that means, it unsettles absolutely everything modern society is trying to do. It's no surprise that Genesis itself as a book has been under peculiar assault, assault both from within and without the church in terms of its authenticity, its integrity, and it's because it has the foundations of the entire gospel in it. In fact, if you went through the first three chapters, I reckon you could preach the entire gospel. It's hidden a little, but it's all there, every piece of it, even down to the promise of a coming saviour who would bruise the heel of the devil who tempted Eve. So this book is fundamental to the Christian faith. You can't just preach the gospel without having a good understanding of Genesis and even admitting to its truth. So we have to see that. And it's going to be very important because when we look at the world at the moment, they've totally unhinged ourselves as a, as a society from this idea that God created. Instead, we think that we lit a match in Bunnings and produced a renovation, that there was an explosion and the earth came to be. And we believe firmly in this statement, God created the heavens and the earth. But it's interesting, why do people challenge us? Why, why we, do we hate this statement so much in terms of the natural man? Why are we so desperate to find theories or reasons that this could not be the case, that God didn't create the heavens and the earth? If we look at the book of Romans, uh, it goes through essentially the deterioration of mankind. It starts with this point that we have manifest ungodliness, Romans 1.18. And then it says in Romans 1.20 here, for since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. If you believe God created the world, it leaves you without excuse as to why do you not live before him as a creator. It leaves you without excuse about an idea or standard of righteousness. So what would people rather do? Well, we're told in verse 21, they become futile in their speculations, their foolish heart was darkened, which is literally what you see at the moment. And then it says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Would rather worship anything but the creator. And when you challenge God's creatorship, that he is the creator and you unhinge yourself from it, you'll find people start theorising and practising and living their lives as though he doesn't exist. They're trying to challenge basic ideas of the concept of heterosexuality or marriage or things that God has created and go, let's just try and break all those norms apart and try something entirely different. Let's redraw God's design in our own image the way we want it to be. We want to live as though we are the creator. And it's funny that when you just look at how quickly things have changed. I'm a young man, I think, still, technically. Are you a young man at 35? No, done, apparently. I thought I was a young man. But anyway, I feel like a very old man because I can go back to when I was a child 
and think how much the world has changed from a moral basis, right? Like back then, it was still politically popular to, for the, uh, all the politicians to say they were Christian, albeit very nominally. Uh, now it's popular to say you hate them. And we're just seeing this massive shift. I mean, I would have not dreamed of, say, 10 years ago, that I could now go in jail for affirming some of the things I'm about to read to you and praying with someone, saying, Victoria, about it. That will put you in jail now. We see people losing livelihoods over these kind of statements. We've got a doctor in, in Victoria who's lost his profession because he affirmed that abortion is wrong and, uh, and we're made male and female. So we have to be really cognizant of the fact that things are going downhill very fast. That's kind of what Romans is saying, that it is going downhill. And if you look at where its source started from, Romans has literally charted the trajectory. Some 200, just under 200 years ago, Darwin came out with his theory of evolution. We've been assaulting Genesis ever since. And you take those foundations away and you will end up with an entirely godless society. So what I want to just challenge people with today, so as we go through these first couple of chapters, we're going to see a whole bunch of foundations in Genesis. And I'll challenge you that some of this stuff is dangerous now. This could get you in real trouble. And now is not a time to shy away. I want us to be emboldened as a people to care about the truths in these passages, to care about God's views on things, and to be happy to share it even though it could cost you a lot in this modern day and age and will likely cost you more and more as time progresses. So what are these foundations, uh, you ask? Well, we're going to go through... and. There is a bit of difficulty in the creation topic because there is so much material here. I could quite literally turn this into a five, six series topic, if you will, without too much challenge. So we're going to just skirt over a couple of these, but it will give you a bit of a, a feel. We started at the very beginning, uh, which is in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And that tells us a lot about God. In fact, you go to the very end, book-ended Revelation, and you'll see the 24 elders worshipping God and what are they saying? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. That is the reason we worship Him and the reason they worship Him. And it says, By your will they exist and came to be. So the very premise of God's creation is we are under His authority and it changes your worldview. We say that we are created beings. We are like clay, He is the potter. He defines who I am. We don't define who I am or who we are. But then we get something really quite amazing. If we go to Genesis 1:26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in the account, this is day six of creation. But this is a startling statement. Then let us make man in our image speaks of trinity amongst a bunch of other complex things but the most fundamental thing here is that we are made in the image of god that sets man in a very special place so if you go into our current society we are totally unhinged we've got a relative truth and we've got an accidental creation which came from nothing what is the role or purpose of man well there is none there's actually no relative value between a man and the chicken right and in fact, you get to the point, they go, well, how do we justify, you know, that man's life is any more precious than that of the chicken? So, well, the chicken, you know, they, they use things like we, we have a high quality of life because we can experience a high quality of life that imbues it with value. But so can the chicken, can have a great quality of life. My chickens uh, quite enjoy themselves, I do believe, on the side, and they lay us eggs every now and then. But fundamentally, there is no difference. 
and you find the world's unhinged with the idea of what is the value of man. Yet according to Christian theology and the Christian worldview, we are special. We, unlike the rest of creation, are made in his image. And startling because there's, there's always this been this fundamental thing about mankind, isn't there, that it's like we are so great in some ways. There's, there's a greatness to mankind, our technological accomplishments, our, our civilization, if you will. There's a grandeur about it all. And yet at the same time, there is such depravity. There is such evil. Yet humanity is, seems more evil than all the rest of creation combined. It can do horrible things. So where's this dichotomy coming from? And really, we have it here, that man was created originally in God's image. And without corruption, without the fall, you still see, or sorry, with it, you still see this sense of grandeur about humanity. Let us make man in our image. It's funny, isn't it? You could almost say, what does God look like? I'm going to answer that question for you. What does God look like? He looks like Charlie. Yeah, he looks like Joel. He looks like us. He imbued man with something special. He said, in our likeness, that there is a sense in which we are like God. And if you took corruption away entirely, that is the best picture of God you're going to get because we are made in his image. He has imbued us with a certain greatness. And we know later in the story that mankind falls and that's what we're basically seeing the evidence of today and that creates the depravity that we also see for this dual nature of man it was born to greatness and it has been corrupted uh, to destruction elsewhere we just look at that principle basically that god has made us in our image he's made us particularly special if you will in all creation uh, god later when he destroys the flood, uh, the earth with a flood and might a lot of you will know the story of noah when Noah came out, God gives him another promise regarding the earth. And one of those is he kind of reinstates some key principles straight out of um, the, the creation story. And one of them, he says, you shall not take man's life. He says in Genesis 9 verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. That is why man's life is so special, because he is in the image of God. This is why we care about things like abortion. This is why we don't end life prematurely at the end and why society really doesn't care for any of it at all. I mean, we can barely get any kind of value in mankind whatsoever. It's just an accidental freak of evolution that man is at the top of the pecking order at the present time. There's no moral basis whatsoever, whereas we say, no, man's life is precious and, in fact, God will require the blood of every man whose blood is spilled. Is what he says in that passage. So it gives us a great sense of value. It, later on in that passage in Genesis 1.27, so literally the verse after, I won't show it, um, he said, we basically see God doing the creation. He says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And again, you just look at such early concepts. This is an amazing book, Genesis, by the way. You just go back to its historicity and see how these concepts were driven in at such a primitive, what we understood to be a primitive time. I don't think it really was. But that these very fundamental concepts are baked in right from the beginning. We have male and female, and we all know that that's massively under-challenged today. We have male and female and a gazillion other genders. But God made them male and female, and he made them in his image, and that is a fundamental characteristic that we get out of creation and which the world is unhinging itself from to its detriment. You also get race. God creates one man, doesn't he? Right? So our idea of race is that we are all equal. Right? We don't subscribe necessarily to the modern view that you know, race is just another political structure that's been in place to uh, destroy each other, although no doubt it can be used as an excuse. But fundamentally, we are all equal. We are all one race under Adam, and we all suffer from that same shortcoming, shortfall. 
not just one of us. So that's man. And there's a heap more I could say, but I'm gonna, I think we'll leave that there. We've got two other main things I want to pull out of the, the creation story. The second one is the mission, Genesis 1.28, which is the verse after we just saw. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So God's original intent for mankind is that we would flourish, right? that we would multiply. God is creative and he imbued that kind of characteristic in ourselves as well. We like to create, we like to build, we like to do things. And that is a characteristic God that he imbued in us. And he told us, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And it, it puts the entire orientation of our environment that we live in back to, to man. What does it God actually say that the earth was for? We, we've come in to tend it, yes, but primarily it is for us. We are to be fruitful, multiply in it. We are to rule over it. We are to subdue it. And it is given to us as a supply. We're told in Genesis 9, it is food for us. So it's an interesting perspective that environment, our environment is essentially ours. It was ours to rule over. Now, modern culture, and I'm not going to necessarily dish it all environment, modern environmentalism, but there are certain aspects of it, definitely. Uh, some of which are the idea of it being sacred in its own right, as though you know, it, it is more important than the value of man. And we see that flipped here in creation. So no, it is subservient to man. And that's important because if you think about how we, we treat the environment, we have, to, we have to think of it not as something like, you know, the Indians might say their cows are sacred and say, well, they must be preserved at all costs and they're more valuable than the land. So we don't do that with the environment. It's actually there for our purposes. Having said that, uh, God says that he puts Adam inside of Eden to care and cultivate it. So we, we certainly look after it as part of that ruling and authority. But the actual word, if we look at uh, one of those in uh, Hebrew, when we're talking about subdue, it is actually a really brutal kind of subduing. It's literally taking it. It's a, it was used to originally describe putting the neck or your foot on the neck of an enemy that you had conquered. It was that kind of real wrestling into shape. The other thing we get out of, I guess, the Genesis story on creation is just this idea that God is in control of creation. So there's a level in which we don't have control over creation. We are there to look after it, to endeavour, to fill it. But it's God who actually holds the whole universe together, doesn't he? In fact, in, uh, after he, again, after Noah's flood, he, sa he made a promise to Noah. He said, as long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. That was God's promise because that's in God's domain. And so in that sense, we don't have to worry in the same way as a modern environmentalist would, that somehow we are going to absolutely destroy the earth with our doing because that was actually God's domain, not ours. He looks after the earth. So we've given a mission to be fruitful and multiply, and I quite like this because what then happens in Genesis chapter 2 is a foundation for, I guess, the society that we live in. It's God's idea of what society should look like. What is the building block of God's society? Can anyone tell me? Anyone have a guess at where we're going here? It's this one, Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So God gives a mission to Adam to be fruitful and multiply. And then we're told very shortly thereafter that in observing Adam's interactions with this world, God goes, nah, it's not good that man should be alone. The first thing God says is not good. He's given this man a mission, and yet he's incomplete. There was not found a helper for him. And so what does he do? He crafts this woman uh, out of him. 
And it's, it's an amazing thing because you see afterwards Adam is just so excited when he sees this woman. He says, wow, the intimate language he uses, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. God has created a woman for me. And, you know, we, we look at this now and you know, modern society thinks the whole idea of heterosexuality is some kind of horror. That the idea that man and woman work together and in particular the woman's role as defined here is to support the man is an oppression it's not, it's actually God's beautiful design and it works amazingly well. Man was entirely incomplete without the woman and it's an endearing relationship that he builds together to put the two together. Now, marriage is a beautiful thing and it's no surprise in society the whole thing has been utterly ripped apart from its foundation. At the moment we say, well, why should we even have heterosexuality? I mean, before it was just, let's get a divorce easily, the commitment doesn't matter, let's liberate our sexuality. Now, let's get rid of heteronormality. You know, what's the whole point of keeping these family structures even? Because if you think about the family structure, it comes straight out of this. What happens when you give man a mission to multiply and fill the earth, and then you give him a wife? What happens then? You get children, don't you? And that is a peculiar thing, again, about the Bible. Not even peculiar, but it's certainly an important thing in the Bible, that children are of great value. Now, there's a lot of young families here. I want to encourage you today, because often you will have young children going, what on earth? This is so hard. <laughs> uh, we're up late. No one thanks us, and they certainly don't thank us. Um, but it's actually God's design. It is a great and noble purpose to have children, because he said... Be fruitful and multiply. And he gave us that, that calling. And it is a particular calling for our young families. If you've got young families, it is a beautiful thing to raise godly children. In fact, um, in Malachi, uh, God made it very clear he was judging the Israelites at the time because they weren't honouring the, the sanctity of marriage. And he actually told them why. He said, has not the Lord made them one having a portion of the spirit? And why one, he says, because he seeks godly offspring that God desires godly children. And we know that in the nature of Jesus, don't we? And that even though it was countercultural, really, to in any way kind of look at, at children individually, he said, no, let the children come to me. He loves the children. And equally, our society uh, seeks to corrupt them, doesn't it? So where we want to raise godly offspring within this sanctity of marriage, and society would rather rip them out of it I would rather corrupt them from an early age regarding their sexuality and all other ungodliness. So these are where we just see this constant tussle between what God has designed as a standard, which is marriage between a man and a woman and a family unit. And even the way um, Adam describes this to say a man will leave his father and mother. We're talking about the nuclear family, aren't we? A man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, a new nuclear family. Family is the fundamental building block of civilization. And has been, that is God's design. It is a beautiful thing. And when we've seen it torn apart, we have some dark days ahead for our modern culture. There's no, no doubt about that. So we look at these three basic things. There's a lot more that can be said about these, but I think that, that'll leave us for now. So let's just talk through what has happened since this design of God. So we have the first three chapters, or first two chapters really, where God has kind of set about a mission, a purpose, and he's set very clearly what his standards were. In fact, you can pretty much look at the law and, and everything we understand to be right and wrong now from the Bible, and just about all it traces itself back to those first couple of chapters, such as their foundation. 
And yet we know what happened, don't we? There was a fall, Genesis chapter 3. There was one thing God had asked of them as a matter of obedience, that they would not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did. And that brought in a corruption to the world, which is evidenced to this day. It is evidenced in man itself because we can see why we hate God so much by nature. And we see in the world that it is not designed and it's not operating the way God would have had it. It's corrupt, it's decaying, it's dying. And that is what happens when sin enters in and corruption. I think the real issue here, as we put through there, just thinking about how God's answer to this. Did God know this was going to happen all along? He knew that we were going to corrupt the world, it was going to be destroyed. Yes, it did. And ever since it happened, there's been this pattern throughout Scripture of God kind of showing that this is not the end. He's going to keep on doing a creative work. He keeps on creating. So if you think about after Adam and Eve had sinned, death comes into the world, and we know then that mankind just goes horribly wrong. We get all kinds of weird corruptions like the Nephilim. And it's, at some point, God says, I just regret that I made mankind. And he says, I'm going to destroy the earth. But he picks out one man, one man. And his name's Noah. And what he does is he saves him. So he destroys the earth with a flood, hence the picture here. And yet this one man, Noah, is preserved. And when the flood waters recede, it's like it's starting afresh, isn't it? It's like there's a new world. In fact, he goes and makes some promises again and reinstitutes a lot of the same things he told Adam at the beginning. Go forth and multiply again to this one man, Noah. He was recreating. But then we see that pattern start to happen again and again, don't we? So after Noah, what happens? Well, there's still sin in the world and it still goes downhill very rapidly and eventually uh, we have a separation at Babel where the peoples are separated and spread throughout the earth. And again, it is evil. But God singles out one man, and his name was Abraham. But in him, I'm going to put in a new promise. Essentially, he starts this work of recreation again. And you see that eventually as he brings the children of Abraham, which we now know as the Israelites, into a promised land. It's like a, a new birth for them, if you will, a new creation. But it goes up and down again. After the Israelites get in there, they fall again. There is this sin and corruption and what happens? And ultimately, God takes them away from the land uh, into foreign countries as captives. But even there, he has a promise, I'm going to bring you back. And he brings them back again and they start anew. They rebuild their cities. So God is constantly working around, if you will, this idea that man is corrupt, bringing destruction, and God was constantly doing a reset. He is destroying and he's recreating. You know, he's, he's destroyed Israel by taking away their captives. They were gone. In 80 years, an absolute miracle occurs. They just recreated out of nothing through the, the kindness, which is ultimately God working in some of these great kings of the time. So at all times, God is working to recreate, to solve this problem that we've brought into the world, which is sin, death, and corruption. So the fundamental problem is that we're the ones who are corrupt. Right? So we're the ones who brought it into the world. So God has to fix us first. And we're told... The moment it happened, Eve, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 3, Eve uh, is sinned. And when, when God is judging her, he tells her, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Sorry, when he's judging the serpent. He's going to say, you're going to be at war with Eve and, the children of, and, and their children, Adam and Eve's children. And between your offspring and hers, so between the devil and his offspring and, and the offspring of Adam and Eve, he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. It's quite literally. There would be one of Eve's seed, 
which we now know to be Jesus, who would come and crush the head of the devil. And that was the starting because we're then told that Jesus is the answer. And in fact, we're told numerous times by the Apostle Paul as we read, he is the beginning, Jesus is the start, the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to reverse this cycle. He is the one who's the first to be born again, if you will, from the dead. Then everything, he might be preeminent. And then we're told 1 Corinthians, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He was a sign that God had done a work in man himself. That through Jesus and him alone and belief in his name, we are told that we are born again. We are fundamentally changed inside. It's a work which we call the new creation. And in fact, we look at 2 Corinthians here, 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This is the turning point because this is where death and corruption is categorically destroyed. And again, his birth within us, his spirit is born within us, we're called a new creation. That is the only thing that is going to reverse the cycle of decay in this world and in this society is that people are born again. There's no other means to do it. Which leads us then to a final step because if God has destroyed sin and death in us and he's created us again if he's solved that problem why are we still living in a world that's corrupt and decaying it's because god is one day going to destroy this world that we're in he's going to destroy it by fire we're told in revelation and we're told up until this point even now that creation groans with this idea because it's what is it waiting for the creation is groaning with an expectation that one day those who are born again the sons of God are going to be revealed. And at that time, it is going to be recreated. Do many of you remember the reading from last week? We ended with, uh, I think it was Revelation 21. And we went through this grand vision that John had at the very end of time when he sees a new heaven and a new earth coming down. And in fact, we'll read from that now quickly. If you've got it there, Revelation 21 verse 1. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And we're told, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. This is some of the beautiful pictures of this new place. Fundamentally, what has changed here in this new heaven, new earth, is that the old selves of us have died. There are no evil people in it. It is no longer subject to corruption. We're told when we rise again by Paul that we're going to shake off the incorruption of this body and put on incorruption we are going to be changed and when we're changed it gives us the ability and godly ability to bring about a new heaven and new earth whereby we live without decay or destruction and that is the fundamental thing i think when you read that passage you know, it just startles me when i'm going through and reading about this new heaven and new earth it says there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away god is creating again the beautiful thing is that this is a finality about this one this is the final work of God's creation to bring about a new kingdom that is everlasting, we're told. And is ruled, his builder and maker is God, this city, and who is inhabited by people who have left their corruption and decay. And so I just wanted to end with this beautiful quote from Jesus directly. Uh, and he who sits on the throne, that is Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. So today, if you do not know Jesus, and if you still feel that, yes, you are very much an evil person, because that's the picture we get from the Bible, that we are decayed, and I would encourage you to seek God, that you might be born again. Yeah.
and you might be made new in him. Amen.